Welcome to Washington in Focus, your source for the week's top stories in the state of Washington. I'm Cole Lauterbach, managing editor for the Center Square Newswire service. This week, we'll be discussing Governor Jay Inslee's final State of the State address, legislation that supporters say would prevent foreign entities from interfering with Washington's elections, the EPA handing out millions for pricing new electric school buses in the Pacific Northwest, and the Spokane City Council being read the Riot Act over their proposal to limit public comment. That's ahead on Washington in Focus. I'm Cole Lauterbach. Knowledge is power, and you deserve to know what happens in your state government. That's why the nonprofit Franklin News Foundation is bringing you straight news journalism through the center square, reporting on state authorities and publishing stories that show where your money goes and who spends it. By supporting the center square, you can track politicians' use of taxpayer money and demand transparency from elected officials. This is how we can equip everyday Americans to hold their government accountable. Become a supporter of Franklin today at franklinnews.org donate. Welcome back to Washington in Focus. I'm Cole Lauterbach. Now let's jump into the headlines. Governor Jay Inslee gave his 11th and final State of the State speech this week, touting many of the economic and policy successes Washington State has seen in recent years, saying the state is stronger than ever. Joining me is the center swears capital correspondent Carlene Johnson from Olympia. Carlene, what was your take on the speech? Well, it was, I suppose, what we kind of expected it to be. A lot of uh, discussion of all his accomplishments, right? Because he's going to be he's going to be uh, out of here after the end of this uh, this year, and so it was a lot of talk about environment, which is of course what his whole shtick was when he made that sort of run for <laughs> presidency a while back, and the carbon emissions thing. He kept hitting on that again and again. Of course, we have the Climate Commitment Act, which uh, is something he had pushed for for, gosh, at least a decade of uh, of his term. Finally got that through. And thus, we have, what, 50 cents more a gallon in gasoline here in the state of Washington. And we have inflation out of control. And uh, he kept saying, if you roll back the CCA, basically the sky is going to fall, right? You're going to, our children are going to be polluted. Mm. So it was it was lots of talk about that. He's got those initiatives coming up in this session, the six initiatives. And so he knows what he's up against. So I think it was a more of an effort to say, hey, wait a minute, don't roll back everything that I've done while I've been here as your governor. Yeah, a lot of that was um, kind of a, a legacy protection uh, effort, uh, I would say, right? Whereas, you know, while the Climate Commitment Act has raised, I mean, we're looking at what uh, billions of dollars at this point, it's also increased the cost of the pump by, I think you said, a half dollar gallon. And they, I think that still holds true at this point. And now the legislature is looking at, I mean, they have to address these six initiatives. One including is the potential repeal of the Climate Commitment Act. And now they're not going to do that on their own, which means it's likely going to go to the ballot. Um, that is certainly going to have to be addressed as the new session begins. Right, Carlene? Absolutely. And in the Republican response right after uh, the speech, Senator uh, John Broadus and Trillia, Republican, he said, you know, whether it's uh, how much you're paying at the grocery store for all your food, your gas, your housing, wages, of course, haven't kept up with inflation on, at all. On top of that, all of these regulations have made everything more expensive. And, uh, you know, they're forcing all of us into electric cars. And he says, you know, when you when you show up at the gas station, you pay another 50 cents a gallon. The only difference there being the Climate Commitment Act. 
And so, of course, since that's been Governor Inslee's entire legacy, everything's about the environment. If that gets rolled back, and it looks like certainly there's the public momentum based on how many people sign these initiatives, uh, if that gets rolled back, what will his legacy then be, right? And so he's uh, he's very concerned about making sure people understand that if we do that, you know, the future is dire for your kids and grandkids. Right. And one thing Republicans pointed out is that there was not much content about some of the more important issues facing Washingtonians where they say crime is is a major, major issue in the state. And it's something that needs to be, you know, law enforcement needs to be enabled to properly do their jobs. You know, you talk about the police pursuit initiative, right. things like that. That was almost a minor note in the governor's speech. Do you, people you talk to in Olympia, people that you speak with in your home and federal way, do they, were they expecting more out of that? Well, yeah, I think that the bulk of what people are concerned about right now, you mentioned, you know, obviously inflation, gas prices, food prices, everything. We don't feel safe in our communities, right? He talks about the fentanyl crisis, absolutely, wanting a lot more, uh, you know, programs that, and facilities to be open for treatment. Um, that That's part of it, right? But the related part of that did not get any attention in the speech or just a tiny bit. All of the drug-related crime. And then that circles back to the police pursuit restrictions, right? You've got cops not able to follow somebody in a smash and grab unless they can, you know, actually see them coming out. Uh, and then in a stolen vehicle, they cannot pursue. This is all related, and there seems to be no acknowledgement of the real suffering that that communities like mine, Federal Way, um, you know, are enduring because of all of these policies and and no prosecution of the criminals. Carlene, thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Uh, we now move on to editor Brett Davis, Washington State and Oregon. You reported we'll soon get more than $51 million in federal funds for 144 electric school buses. That's money's being distributed across the Northwest. Brett, where could you outline exactly where this money is going? Sure. Uh, Beaverton School District in Oregon, they're getting about $19.75 million to purchase 50 buses. Um, a school bus provider, a school bus services provider called First Students Incorporated, they're getting about $16.5 million to purchase 46 buses in both states. Uh, bus dealer RWC Group will receive more than one, more than $11.1 million to purchase 33 buses across Washington and the Walla Walla Public School District here in Washington State will get $3.75 million to purchase 15 buses. Uh, these, this is a part of the uh, EPA's uh, Clean School Bus Grant Program, which is itself part of the uh, $1.2 trillion Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act of 2021. Uh, the program is set to provide $5 billion in total funding through fiscal 2026 for low and zero emission school buses. Uh, so far, the EPA, EPA has allocated about $2 billion to the program, uh, the $51 million going to Oregon and Washington is part of an almost $1 billion doled out across the nation. And uh, back in October of 2022, uh, Vice President Kamala Harris came to Seattle to introduce the initial award of nearly $1 billion. So I start, I'm starting to sound like Carl Sagan, billions and billions. <laughs> and now, I went to school for journalism, so my math is not exactly the strongest, but $51 million for 144 buses equals a good chunk of money uh, that... That 
each individual bus must be fairly pricey, correct? Especially right. compared to your conventional diesel bus. Yeah, I was really surprised at how much electric school buses cost. They typically cost between four hundred thousand and four hundred fifty thousand dollars, which is three times the price of your traditional diesel bus. Of course, proponents they say that uh, these buses are much cheaper to operate and they save school districts money in the long term. Um, an interesting figure I came across while researching and writing this story was that on average, it costs about fourteen cents a mile for a bus to recharge with electricity, compared to forty nine cents per mile for a bus to refuel with diesel. Huh. Uh, people who champion these electric buses, they also say, and I don't know how realistic this is, but I, I saw this a lot, that they can act as giant batteries. They can store surplus right. electricity when they're in use, meaning school districts can make money by selling power back to the grid during times of peak demand. I mean, that's right. all well and good, but all these savings come down the road, so to speak. So there are a lot of upfront costs that are pretty shocking for a lot of school districts, especially smaller rural districts that don't have a lot of money to throw around. Exactly. And, I mean, and this technology still being new, you look back at like VCRs when they were initially made for sale were an exorbitant cost compared right. to what you could get for something much more technologically advanced now for a fraction of that cost. But in addition to that sticker shock, we've seen coverage of electric school buses showing issues like you know, battery replacement after what it's six to 10 years repair issues uh, because the issue is that these are different types of vehicles right. where a normal shade tree mechanic that knows how to work his way around a diesel, his or her way around a diesel engine is going to need an entirely different skill set to be able to repair one of these newly technologically advanced buses. And even the difficulties to tow a school, an electric school bus is going to be difficult because these are massively heavy vehicles. These batteries are very, very heavy. And you would need a an actual, you know, like what you see, the, the semi-truck, tow trucks that would have to come out and tow one of these vehicles if it does, you know, die in the street or something like that and it breaks down outside of the school garage. All of those things can add up to a significant cost for taxpayers. And that's not even mentioning if, say, you're out in a rural Washington, like, say, eastern Washington, where our reporter Randy Brock, Brock lives, you've got uphill much more inclement weather. This all could lead to further degradation of the battery, which adds up to a much larger cost for taxpayers who are going to be on the hook for them. Right. What else did you find in that regard, Brett? So I found that the batteries make up anywhere from 30 to 50% of the cost of the bus. So you can imagine how much, how expensive it would be to repair, let alone replace one of these batteries. I mean, 30 to 50% of four hundred to $450,000, that's a big chunk of change. And you were talking yeah. about the maintenance. There have been issues there as well. Um, a lot of these buses are often out of commission for longer than expected uh, because of the time required to complete the repairs. And that's assuming you can even find someone to do the repairs in a timely fashion as it's it's been difficult to find mechanics and how to fix these electric buses. You know, they're fairly new on the scene. There aren't a lot of people out there who know how to repair them. Towing these electric buses, which are typically heavier, thus requiring uh, you know larger tow trucks, so apparently, and this is something I came across in researching the story, uh, towing capacity should be about half the weight of the towing vehicle. And the typical electric school bus weighs in at 36,000 pounds. So you do the wow. math. Well, <laughs> and, I mean, at 36,000 pounds, you're looking also at road grade issues, right. where in places where the roads freeze, you're, and then come the inevitable thaw, that's why they have road postings all over the, you know, the Midwest, Pacific Northeast, anywhere where you have a good winter frost and then once it thaws it's pothole season 
right? <laughs> With these larger vehicles that add more stress to the asphalt, this can't bode well in terms of an everyday, twice a day route for these sometimes rural electric school buses to be going over these roads that are vulnerable to potholes. They're putting it bigger and deeper potholes. Right, right, exactly, and that's not a problem in Washington yet. So I mean, I <laughs> don't have to worry about that now. I assume. I say I haven't even mentioned the necessity of building out adequate charging infrastructure. You know, so these school right. bus fleets can be deployed. Uh, in many cases, there's simply just not enough. There are not enough charging stations for electric buses, and then there are questions about whether or not the electrical grid can you know handle the additional load. So. Yeah, right. Well, you, um, I'm glad that Washington has such robust hydroelectric power coming from their dams um, that they don't have to worry about you know losing that base load power, right? Right. Um, <laughs> In theory, anyway. I kid. Uh, there's <laughs> another story about how the uh, Biden administration is looking to eventually open the window for those dams to be um, dismantled, I guess, taken down, uh, blown up however you'd say it to uh help the salmon uh population right. in the on the columbia but uh it, you know it, you go back to these grants brett is you know we talk about all these extra costs would these grants pay for any of the extra the battery replacement the repair issues maybe even help try and train up the school's mechanics to fix these vehicles if should they break down are, are the, is there details to pay for any of that in these grants that you found so the epa's news release only mentions funds being used for the purchase of electric school buses and i did some digging around and i didn't come across anything that said otherwise uh, still i had a hard time believing that uh you know school districts you know they could have money left over you know if they don't if they only buy so many buses and you know why wouldn't they be able to use it for toning repairs and such but i don't know that for sure so i thought that would actually make a good follow-up story because i actually found no information about that hmm. yeah no i think that that would be very enlightening to see if this is one of those situations where uh taxpayers are in favor of something like electric school buses or expanding medicaid but then all of a sudden the federal government subsidy does run out and taxpayers locally end up on the hook for something like that. Right. And, this you know, is, while supporters say costs of this will eventually drop as technology advances, you know, VCRs weren't subsidized for the, right. by the federal I mean, government. I think this is just giving more ammunition to critics who say that government is putting the cart before the horse, as it were, when it comes to not just electric school buses, but electric vehicles in general. So the curious well to see how this all horses. plays out. Right. Well beyond horses at this point. There's the electric carts to head kids to school right okay hey thank you brett i appreciate it it's cool uh, um, a new session in olympia means new bills to scrutinize one of those if it gets the governor's john hancock would change the state's campaign finance law to ban what's called foreign influenced corporations from meddling in the state's elections the current law bans foreign nationals from doing so Investigative reporter T.J. Martinell reported on this bill. T.J., what exactly could you explain is a foreign-influenced corporation? So that's the interesting thing about this bill is how it defines it. And it's defined as a for-profit corporation or LLC that has a foreign investor that owns 1% or more of the company's interest, or there's more than one foreign investor that owns 5% of the total ownership interest. That comes off as very nebulous, um, right, as compared to what it 
the current law is where a foreign national is a foreign national. I mean, that is just, it is what it is. And now you add this added degree of complication to it. I, I'm curious what the intent of this measure is. I mean, that the supporters are saying, like, what's the goal? Well, the goal is to prevent foreign meddling in elections uh, through spending or through contributing to campaigns. But the problem is, how do you determine the ownership percentage? Because the way that the companies can be traded, you can own 1% one second and then not own 1% another second. Right. If you're looking at a publicly traded company, you have the, the trading of said public entity on the markets happening every day in real time. I wonder if there's not going to be some sort of you know, check-in date where first of every year they have to provide a report to the state of Washington to show, no, we're not owned by a uh, foreign influence. We're not a foreign influence corporation. Here's our ownership list. I can only imagine what type of burden that would uh, create. But the other question that comes to mind, and I think others brought this up, is this legal? Well, that's a good question. There's been some court cases challenging these kind of policies because I think part of it is 1% of a company is not significant as far as being saying it's foreign influence. That's I that out of an entire company for one person to have 1%, that company may not be very big. Um, so the other issue is it's telling a U.S. company what it can do. I mean, they can form a separate pack. That's one way to get around it, but it just costs. That, that's something that bigger companies could potentially do, but smaller companies can't do that. It, they just don't have the resources. The other question is, how do you enforce it? How do you, how do you right. know that they own 1% at the very moment that that contribution was made? Exactly. And as you say, 1% of a company, I mean, I, you know, my 401k is invested, I could probably say almost 1% of a bunch of different companies, but that doesn't mean I have a say in what Apple does. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, it's, it seems a little right. bit tricky to say, deem that company foreign influenced, even though such an infinitesimal amount might be coming from a foreign influence corporation, which in a worldwide economy, I, I can't imagine you're probably naming many of the companies that would have yeah. formerly participated in elections. And, you know, th this is a free speech issue, like you mentioned, right. <clears throat> where these companies, as Citizens United deemed, they technically are able to express their right of free speech, just like an individual American would to say we are going to, you know, post our influence into our local civic duty. Now, one lawmaker brought up a fascinating point about what you had mentioned about how this could actually be manipulated and weaponized to block local smaller businesses from participating in the democratic process. Explain that scenario, TJ. Yeah, you simply have a foreign agent who's acting on your behalf by a buy up a bunch of ownership in the company up to 1%. And then as long as you hold that amount through the election cycle, they can't make any contributions. So you could you could inadvertently prevent because th there's if it's publicly traded, there's nothing that the company co or corporation can do to prevent people from buying or selling. So right. they can't say, well, we don't want you to buy it because you're a foreign investor who's trying to prevent us from participating in an election. They can't do that. And 
you know, the other one is that it goes back to the the issue of how it's defined. One person testifying noted that it only applies to for-profit corporations. It doesn't apply to non-government entities like NGOs, uh, nonprofits, and it doesn't apply to international labor unions. So those entities would be able to make donations, just not corporations. We'll uh, track this as it makes its way through the Capitol. Thank you, TJ. Now on to Eastern Washington. Reporter Randy Brock joins us with a wild one about Spokane City Council's attempt to change their policy about how often the public can have their voice heard before city officials, something that's been a staple in every city council for you know centuries, decades. Uh, Randy, just exactly ex- explain what the city council was attempting to implement, please. Well, the council's uh, proposal is to revamp its open public forum policy um, and this was kind of expressed Monday night. There was tentatively some action scheduled for it, but it received a, a lot of criticism from a number of citizens uh, during that meeting. Uh, the individuals who spoke against it feel it's an attempt to suppress or silence their voices. Explain the change. How you know? Compare what they're proposing to the current system that is in place that they've had for a, a long, long time. Well, under the current council rules, uh, they allow up to 15 speakers who sign up in advance, either in person or online. They're allowed to voice their views uh, with a two-minute limit uh, at the beginning of uh, each weekly council meeting. These comments are supposed to be respectful, directed to the council president without singling out any other council members or city staff. Uh, What the proposal consists of the open forum period would instead be instructed to just the third meeting of each month instead of the weekly meeting. Uh, But the number of speakers who would be allowed would be extended up to 40 speakers. During those particular meetings, the council would uh, shorten its legislative business and only address uh, items on a consent agenda. According to the city documents, the change would, and this is a quote, increase opportunity for more diversity of speakers, many of them from historically excluded communities. Uh, Another motivation apparently is it would speed up the council uh, business during uh, each month's three other meetings. Unofficially, uh, the proposal seems to stem from circumstances that have been ongoing since mid-October. Since then, the the council's open forum sessions have been dominated by roughly 10 to 20 individuals who return each week to voice support for Palestinians, and they condemn the council's October 9 resolution that in turn expressed support for the nation of Israel's right to exist following the October 7 attack by Hamas terrorists. These complaints are repeated weekly. Many of the same speakers, they've also uh, repeatedly called on the council to defund or reduce uh, spending sent to the police department and, and instead use those monies towards social services and housing for the poor and disadvantaged. Randy, so what happens moving next? Are, are they going to move forward with this? Right now, Betsy Wilkerson, who's the council president, said the members expect to consider the revisions to the rules during their January 22nd meeting. The open forum change, if they adopt it, would be monitored in its new format, see how effective it is. Uh, Reportedly, though, the council may also decide to stick to its current weekly format, but move it to the end of the meeting so that the business agenda can be addressed first. So we shall see. 
Thank you, Randy. I appreciate it. Uh, and a big thank you to all of our journalists for sharing their stories. Stay up to date with all of these stories and more at thecentersquare.com. I'm Cole Lauterbach. And until next time, this has been Washington in Focus.